mindfulness mode. As long as you can sustain it, I mean, we're talking like five, six minutes, whatever, you will raise your body temperature so high you'll start to fight off the virus. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness right here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and mindfulness life coach, Bruce Langford. Hey, Mindful Tribe, if I talk to you about the most successful series of books that was ever written, at least in our modern day, I bet this man's name would come to your mind. And today I'm very excited. I have Jack Canfield with me today. Hey, Jack, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am indeed, always. That's great, Jack. Well, Jack, I'm I'm really excited, like I said, to uh, to learn more about your newest book and what you're up to and, and so on. And of course, we're all going through this challenging pandemic right now, and it's putting us all on this planet in the same playing field in a way, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. It's been, uh, you know, it's an equalizer. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are. Uh, you know, I have many friends who have come down with the coronavirus. I have uh, a couple of staff people who've lost members of their family that have actually died in the last couple of weeks. Wow. And so, you know, for a while it was like the Ebola virus. It was over there in Africa somewhere and you, you watch it on the news and think that's terrible. But all of a sudden, you know, it's for real right now. And uh, so, but I think that's what's really valuable for all of us that are in this mindfulness mode is that mindfulness is one of the greatest tools you can have right now to stay sane, to stay centered, to keep your immune system high. We can talk about all that if you want. I've been, I think in the last two weeks, I've been on 20 or more podcasts and radio interviews and everyone's talking about it. And I've been sharing something I call the five M's. We can talk about that if you'd like to as well. But it's, um, it's a time that we're all confronted in a way. I've been telling people, you know, this is a huge time out. When I was a kid, and I did something bad, my mom would say, you're getting a timeout, and she sent me to my room. And all of us are in our rooms right now, called our homes or our apartments, and we can't go out. And we have to think about what we did, you know, and why is it that our healthcare system is so overloaded, unprepared? Why is it that we were burning up the environment in terms of the forests and the seas and, you know, the ice caps melting and the pollution that we have and the bad, vi- bad diets that most people are eating? And, you know, we could go down the line it's made my family at least sit around and talk about that and say, okay, what's the new normal going to look like? We want that normal to be something that's of a higher level, more compassion, more love, more, uh, you know, abundance, more prosperity, but not at the cost of our uh, fundamental essential life. Yeah, I agree with you completely, Jack. And uh, well, you mentioned mindfulness, more important than it's ever been to understand mindfulness and to live with mindfulness. What does mindfulness mean to you, Jack? Well, it means to me being aware. It means being aware of what I'm experiencing in my own body, what my emotions are, what my thoughts are. Uh, I set an alarm to go off about every hour. I'm one of these people that's very intellectually active and I could sit for five hours editing books and stories and forget that I have to go to the bathroom, drink water, get up and move. And then when I finally remember, it's like my legs almost don't move, you know? Yeah. So when I first learned about mindfulness, I started doing Vipassana meditation way back when and uh, 10 day retreats with people like Jack Cornfield and so forth. And so I, I literally meditate every day. So that's a, a period of like intense mindfulness, if you will. But throughout the day, just to stop. And I, for me, it requires like an alarm to go off or something to remind me. And uh, then I, I stop. I, I scan my body from head to toe. Notice my breathing. Am I breathing shallow? Am I breathing deep? Take some slow, deep breaths. 
Uh, I'm a real big uh, advocate of this six slow breaths in, six slow breaths out. Or also doing what they call box breathing, where you inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four, and then hold out for four. But just because whenever we're stressed out, someone always says, hey, man, slow down, take a breath, you know. And so by breathing, any of the pranayama yoga exercises, you know, uh, it was really helpful for me. And then I check in with my thoughts. Mostly I'm involved. So I'm not like someone who's sitting around like my, my, my stepdaughter, who's more into like worrying about everything, you know. So yeah. for her, if she scans her thoughts, she realizes I'm making myself crazy by thinking these thoughts. You know, fear is the result, as we often heard, fantasized experiences appearing real or future experiences appearing real. And what happens is we're going into the future, imagining something bad that hasn't happened yet instead of being right here in the present moment. Because right here in the present moment, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, I'm happy, I'm warm or cold, depending on which I want to be, you know, temperature control. And I've got food in the pantry, I've got food in the refrigerator. Everyone in my house is healthy at the moment. Um, I'm looking out the window. It just rained all day yesterday, but now everything's green and blue skies. And, and I've got, you know, I love to do this exercise called the Rampage of Appreciation that uh, Esther Hicks has channeled uh, Abraham, which is basically looking around. And everywhere I look, I see earphones. I can listen to great music with my, my phone, my clock, which tells me what time it is, the water in a bottle next to me, this computer that someone invented and created. And so there's so many things to be grateful for as well. So I'm a big fan of gratitude. And uh, so mindfulness for me is as much as possible staying present to what I'm experiencing in me, what I'm experiencing outside, what I can actually sense in you, not going into like projections, oh, he's mad at me because he's not talking to me. All I notice is you're not looking at me. And then I can project all kinds of thoughts on that. But that's not, you know, necessarily what's really going on. So I'm a big teacher of when in doubt, check it out. <laughs> Right. I'm imagining things ask is that what you're really feeling you know um, so it, it's a combination of awareness tools and and then responding I think to those awarenesses you know stretching my body drinking more water getting up and moving uh, being quiet when my wife's talking instead of interrupting her you know all, all those things <laughs> yeah Jack I loved your book the success principles and I'm just wondering which one of those success principles would you say to someone right now as we deal with this concern with the pandemic which success principle do we need to get on board with immediately well I think the most important one's actually the first one I put in the book which was take hundred percent responsibility for your life and your results and in that chapter there is a, a formula that says E plus R equals O. You have an event plus your response equals an outcome. And what happens is we have an event right now called the coronavirus pandemic. We have an event called your governor said stay at home, don't travel. We have an event called there's not as much toilet paper on the shelves in the supermarkets. You know, whatever you want to call these things that we're experiencing. We watch a news show. That's an event. And I think that our, it's our response to the event that is the thing that's going to produce the outcome of what our experience is. So our experience now is the outcome of how we responded to an earlier event. You know, if someone gives you a $2,000 bonus check at the end of the year, you can either spend it, that's a response, or you can put it in invest it, and that's a different response. And a year later, you're going to have a different outcome. One of them is you have no money. And the other one is you have like maybe, you know, 5% more money in your, your IRA account or something. So the reality is that most people now have a choice about three things. There's only three things you can control in life. You can control your thoughts, you become aware of them, 
you choose different thoughts or you choose no thought, which is what the Buddhists would have you do, just be present 100% with no judgment, no interpretation. You have the ability to control your images. So basically, if you find yourself imagining terrible things, like even if there was a snake in your studio right now, and that snake was coming toward you, you'd have to go into the future a few seconds and imagine that snake biting you to be afraid. Yes. You know, the snake's just moving across the floor. You don't know what it's going to do. And so as we go into the future and imagine we're going to lose our home, our child's going to get sick, my mother's going to die, I'm not going to be able to pay the mortgage, I'm not going to have a job when this is over, you know, that kind of stuff, which is not the case right now for most of us. What happens is then we experience fear. And fear goes us, takes us into the amygdala, which is the you know back central part of the brain. The amygdala hijacks the prefrontal cortex, which is where rational thought and, and creativity and spiritual ideas and, and, and experiences come from. And so basically by stopping the negative thoughts coming into the present moment, either just focusing on our breath or focusing on just what's so around us, the, the reality without interpretation, without stories, we can come into the present moment and there's a couple techniques I teach, I'll be glad to share them with you in a moment, where you can literally harmonize the brain and the heart such that you automatically activate the prefrontal cortex, get out of the amygdala fear. Now we have the ability to deal rationally with what, what, what we need to do. If you're, if you're a compromised person with asthma or you've had you know, pneumonia recently, you've smoked too much, then you really should quarantine yourself and not go out. That makes sense to do. There are vitamins and herbs and supplements that would make sense to be taking right now. Um, you know, I was watching Bill Maher last night, he's yeah. a comedian, and he was saying he's now only doing edibles. He's not inhaling marijuana because he wants to not hurt his lungs so much, you know. Uh, but there are, there are rational things you can do that if you have facts, those, those are useful. But then beyond that, we just need to come back into the present moment and be with our breath or be with what is so... Uh, in terms of our physiology, what we're experiencing in our body, what we're experiencing around us. And then we don't have to be afraid so much. So E plus R equals O. If you find you're experiencing anything you don't like, you know, not just during the pandemic, but a lot of people are experiencing, for example, their their income has gone down. You know, people aren't ordering their products or online services. Maybe they had a job where they're furloughed, they're at home. And the question now is, okay, what what can I do creatively to respond to this so that I don't go broke. But if you're, if you're, if you're so in fear about what's going to happen in the future, you can't really deal presently in the moment. Just to give you one example, uh, a friend of mine who has a, a studio where he, it's a fitness studio. People come in to work out. He's got a lot of equipment, big studio. And all of a sudden the order is you can't go those places. You know, you're locked down in your home. All those studios are closed. So, he did this 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 breathing technique, uh, which comes from the Heart Math Institute. You're probably familiar with it. Yes. Uh, the quick coherence process. And as he began to get into his prefrontal cortex, what happened was he had a creative idea. And the idea was all my clients are sequestered at home. They can't come out. I've got all this equipment. Why don't I sanitize it within an inch of his life? Call up all my clients and say, I'll deliver this to your home. You want a spin cycle? Uh, bicycle, you want to have a treadmill, you want an elliptical, whatever you, weights, whatever you want. And he's renting that equipment to them. And he's actually making money renting the equipment. It's doing as well as he did when he was had the gym memberships, people coming in. So there, it's possible to have better outcomes if you're doing the right responses. The only responses we have are what we think, what we imagine, what we say and do. And so we can control all of those. 
Yeah, well, you know, I've read so many books that have had a lot of great concepts and ideas, and and certainly the success principle does too. But one thing I notice is I read the book and I'm thinking about things and it says, you know, you should do this or you should do that. And then I don't always do it. Right. But with your new book, the Success Principles Workbook, you've got all of those worksheets and activities right there in the book. And I think that's what really makes the difference between um, just reading stuff and feeling good about it at the time and reading stuff and actually doing it, learning from it and changing. So what's one exercise you put in that book that you think is really life changing for people right now? Well, that's like asking me if, you know, we can only keep one organ in your body, which one would you pick? You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll, I'll say why I say that, because there's really a, a, a concept behind it. And then I will share some activities with you. But what happens is that um, what I'm teaching in this book and what I taught in the original Success Principles book and what I've now put in the workbook is it's a system that if you follow it in the right order, you're going to get the outcome you want. So a system is something that creates a predictable result over and over and over and over. In other words, if I gave you a lock and gave you the combination for that lock and you knew the combination, you could lock and unlock that lock as many times as you wanted and have as many successes in a sense as you wanted. The problem is a lot of people are missing some of the numbers in this combination called how to have success in life. Or they might have all the numbers and they're working really hard, but they're doing them in the wrong order. In other words, if you create your goals before you clarify your purpose in life, as Stephen Covey said in the uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you could get to the top of the ladder and be leaning against the wrong wall. And so we want to make sure that what we're doing, what we're putting our life energy into is aligned with the intrinsic purpose that we were born to fulfill. I believe everyone has a, a purpose. Some of us are meant to be media people like yourself and you know you're a broadcaster you're casting broad information some of us are meant to be doctors and nurses and thank god we have those people on the front lines right now some of us are meant to be musicians you know little kids i have a grandson who's uh, six and a half who i just talked to it's my son's birthday today in brooklyn and we were facetiming and he just bought himself a uh, cello he's a drummer by by trade and the kid is just trying to play the cello. He's just a natural musician. He just wants to play instruments. He's got a piano. He's got a drum set. He's seven years old, you know? And so, and the other kids, they're doing, you know, binomial progressions in their head while they're in the crib at two years old, they're doing math problems in their head. So we are all given a set of talents that if we can identify them and bring them forward and then create goals around that, we can have incredible lives. Now, having said all that, I think one of the, greatest exercises is to really start to look at in this first chapter how much blaming complaining and excuse making we all do in life so there's a whole thing like what are the who are think of all the people we're blaming right now you know we're blaming the government you know we're blaming trump for not getting on the ball soon enough trump's blaming the congress for impeaching him so he didn't have time to think about it you know the congress is blaming each other the senate and the congress the, you know, and also the Democrats and the Republicans and the liberals and the conservatives and, you know, on it goes. And it, it produces no better outcome, you know, and we, we blame the weather for making us late in that anyone in California that I know leaves home late. They know it's going to, the 405 is a, is a freeway. It, it's really a parking lot described as a, you know, <laughs> as a freeway. And so they say, well, the traffic may be late. Well, you've been late eight days in a row. What are you pretending not to know? You live in Los Angeles, you know? Right. And 
so I have a whole set of exercises in that first chapter to really get in touch with what is your blaming and your complaining. And one of the things about complaining that people don't realize is when you're complaining about something, you only can complain about something if you have a preference of something you prefer, but you're not willing to risk creating. So if I'm complaining about my wife, like let's say I'm watching the Super Bowl and I'm watching that and I'm eating, I, this is made up because I don't do this. I'm, I'm a pretty conscious eater, but let's say I'm watching the Super Bowl, I'm eating Cheetos and I'm drinking beer and my wife comes in and she says, I can't believe you're watching the Super Bowl and you're eating this terrible food and getting drunk and those people are out on the field and they're in healthy shape and they're making lots of money. You should go to the gym and work out. So I go to work on Monday and I complain about my wife, the food Nazi, right? Yeah. Well, I couldn't complain about her if I didn't know that somewhere on the planet was another woman going, hi, honey, can I get you some more nachos? Would you like another beer? And there are women who do that. So you never hear an older person complaining about gravity. Why not? Because gravity, you can't change it, right? right? So we don't complain about things we can't change. If you're complaining about the weather, it's only because you know there's better weather somewhere else. And rather to move to Florida or move to Miami, I mean, or move to you know, Arizona, let's say, to get out of the snow, you just rather sit around and complain. We call it the Ain't It Awful Club. In some bars, that's all people do. So if once you become aware of it, to be mindful again, most of us are not mindful of our self-sabotaging habits. And these exercises in the book are partly aware to get you aware of that and then give you options of things to do differently. For example, uh, I have a whole exercise called difficult and troubling experiences in that first chapter on 100% responsibility. The questions go something like, what's a difficult or troubling experience in your life? What are you doing to keep it in place? How are you creating it? In other words, in other words, I create having my sister mooch money off me because I don't tell her no, or I don't want my mother to be mad at me, or I don't want people to think I'm this rich guy who doesn't care about his sister because she'll be out on the street with a shopping cart and they'll say, well, Jack Canfield, he's got all that money. Why didn't he care? You know, so what am I telling myself to keep that in shape? What am I pretending not to know? Well, it's keeping my sister, uh, you know, what's the word I want, dependent, and not developing her best internal skills. And we go through these set of questions like that. You know, what's the payoff I get? Well, no conflict. I don't have to deal with her and hear her cry. Um, what's it cost me? It's costing my wife being ticked off because she's going, well, you can afford to give your sister that. Why can't I afford to get a new shoes, you know? And so you go down through these questions, you get to the end and you go, wow, I need to talk to my sister. And, you know, when will you do that by? And I recommend people do that every month. And what, I have a yoga teacher who, when she started working with me, was making 50000 a year. Based on the success principles, she's now making $500,000 a year. Her name's Peggy Bassett, and she's the PBS, one of the PBS yoga instructors that does fundraisers for them. And uh, she said, I do that exercise every single month, and I always come up with something where I'm, I'm stuck in my life, and I didn't realize I was the one who was sticking myself. So that's just an example of one, one principle. Uh, one of the things I, I think is fascinating is you talk about clean up your messes. Yes. And I'm I'm just thinking, you know, some of my Mindful Tribe listeners, you may think, well, what's the connection between clean up my messes and mindfulness and success? Can you explain that to us? Sure, sure. Do you ever know if you have a little crack in the wall or a spot on the wall, you notice it a lot when you first get it? Yep. And if you don't do anything about it, you stop noticing it after a while. You know, it just becomes background, yeah. which means you've numbed out your awareness. And so there's a couple of things that happen there. As I begin to not be aware of this, and I don't want to be aware of my sister's knees, and I don't want to be aware of this, the cats pooping all over the house or whatever. Pretty soon, 
my awareness shuts, I shut my awareness down. And so then I'm not aware of my higher self. I'm not aware of my intuition that's giving me guidance. You know, we all should be responding to our highest inner guidance. And so what happens is we need to clean up our messes for a couple of reasons. Number one, those kind of things happen and we don't deal with them. And so our awareness shuts down. The second thing that happens, we often start to get into a place where let's say that you've got this junk drawer in your kitchen, which we all tend to have, you know, it's got flea medicine, it's uh, outdated and it won't even work on the dog anymore. Two dog collars of dogs you don't even own anymore with their little identity tags, a flea brush, you know, just, and then all kinds of other things that are in there, you know, two screws, one broken screwdriver, you know, and every time you go in there, part of you thinks I should clean this up, but you don't do it. And so there's this part that says, God, I can't even have a clean drawer in my kitchen. I can't even have a set of glasses that match, you know, whatever. And so then what happens on the subconscious level is how are we going to create peace in the Middle East or how am I going to become a millionaire or how am I going to become a best-selling author if I can't even keep my house clean, if I can't even organize my books, if I can't even, you know, keep the bathroom organized. So on a subconscious level, all of those things are doing several things. The other thing they do is it's taking what we call attention units. Because like if I look around at my desk and I've got 35 unfinished things, every post-it that's still there usually represents an incomplete in my life. Someone I should call, something I should do, something I should fix, call the plumber, you know, do that thing, read that book, order that thing from Amazon, whatever. And the more incompletes I have that are taking my attention, it doesn't allow me to have my full attention, goes back to mindfulness again, have my full attention on the most important task. One of my mentors, as a man uh, who runs a strategic coach program in Chicago, whose name will come to me in just a second. I don't know why it's not coming right this second. Anyway, Dan Sullivan. So Dan Sullivan, I took his program, and Dan has an office space, and his, like his company has offices, but he has no office. He said, because what I realized is a desk is just a place for incomplete things to pile up. All the things you didn't read, all the books you're going to handle, all the you know emails you printed out that you're going to respond to, whatever. So he said, I have three conference rooms in the office and I just book a conference room whenever I come in and I bring in people and they bring in the such and such file, bring in that artwork to look at, who do I need to talk to, get them on the phone. And at the end of the day, I have this empty conference table again. I just go home. There's nothing piled up for me to do. And so he's not like storing stuff. You know, most people's credenzas behind their desk are just piles of magazines they haven't read, reports they're going to read, letters they're going to file etc. So he didn't have any of that. So all of his attention is on learning and teaching. So he probably reads a couple books a week, figures out what's in there that's valuable that he can teach his students, his coaching clients. He develops some process around that, calls them uh, strategies, something like that. And he he'll usually writes like a little booklet a month that he sends out to his clients based on something he's read, because he said, if it's not usable, why know it? And so then he turns it into something usable. But the point being that he has 100% focus on everything he's doing. Now, I'm not quite like that because I'm a collector of stories that I then put into books and collectors of you know ideas and so forth, but very much more that way than I ever was before I met, I met Dan. So the more incompletes I have, it's taking up attention units. We know that the mind can only hold about seven units of attention at a time. And when you get beyond that, they found out something called the Zygarnik effect. A waitress will remember what everyone in her station has eaten until they pay the bill. 
And then five minutes later, she can't tell you what they had because it's complete. She doesn't need to cloud her, her mind with that. But most of us are running around with so many incompletes. So one of the uh, tasks I give people in the book, I have a whole page of about 25 things that you need to look at. Do you have filing that's undone? Do you have tax records that are not organized? Do you have stuff that needs to be fixed and repaired? Are there things that no longer fit that you're diluting yourself that you're going to weigh 122 pounds again, you know, even though you're 48 and you eat too much like most of us do. So like going through your clothes closet, going through all the junk drawers, going through the attic, your, your, I've seen people's car trunks that, that look like used, uh, used stores, you know, there's so much stuff in there. Even the back seat of some people's cars, they're like archeological digs. You know that they ate this on Tuesday because it's between the newspaper of Wednesday and Monday, and there's the McDonald's wrapper, you know? And so it's like, it, 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 it gives you such clarity of focus when you've completed, and also emotional things. Who are, you, who are you incomplete with? Who do you owe an apology to? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to ask for money they owe you? Who do you need to pay back? Uh, so there's a, a whole checklist. When I'm training my trainers, I would, now I've got 3,500 trainers around the world teaching in 107 countries, teaching the success principles. They have to go through that entire list and complete it in order to become certified because I want them to be living these principles and also be as focused as they can. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I love what you say in your book about uh, surround yourself by successful people. And we hear that over and over and over, but you have a brilliant suggestion in there. And I think that's just great what you what you suggest. And that is about interviewing. So tell us about that. Well, I have a lot of things in my book. I don't remember everyone in great detail, so you might have to help me remember the one you're referring to. Yeah, well, you just said, you know, if you can't always surround yourself with successful people, oh, yeah. interview successful people and yeah. become familiar with their concepts and, and just become familiar with what they're all about and learn about right. them, just like I'm right. doing now. And I and I absolutely agree wholeheartedly. I think that's a great way to, to uh, just become more comfortable with successful people. Well, don't you find as an interviewer that you're learning stuff every week that you might not have known and you're actually applying some of it in your life and your life's improving as a result of it? Absolutely. Yeah, it yeah. truly is. So yeah. I have, you know, Jim Rohn has that famous quote, you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And obviously that's family members, colleagues at work, your best friends and so forth. And if those, and I have an exercise in the book to list all the people you have constant interaction with, put a plus sign next to everyone who uplifts you, put a minus sign next to everyone who brings you down. And uh, when I first did that, my mentor, W. Clement Stone, who was a multimillionaire, he was worth $600 million in the 1970s. Wow. And he interviewed me for a job at his foundation, which I, I ended up getting. And he said, um, do you uh, take 100% responsibility for your life? I said, yeah. He says, uh, do you blame anybody? Yeah. You, he went through this whole thing and I realized I wasn't thinking 100%. Then he said, I want you to make a list of everyone you spend you know, time with consistently. Put a plus next to everyone who's positive and minus next to everyone who's negative. He said, now I want you to stop spending time with anyone who's negative. And I said, uh, Bill, my mother's name has a minus sign next to it. Uh, what do I do? He says, uh, holidays, that's it. Don't, don't, just that's it. Because they're going to bring you down. And they do. You know, we have some people that are like, one of, I think Zig Ziglar called them psychic vampires. You come into the room and they just kind of suck the energy out of you or out of the room. Other people walk in the room, the whole room lights up. 
You know, mm-hmm. you want to be that person. You want to surround yourself with that kind of person. So as you were saying, if you can get into the sphere of influence of those people, like go to the church they go to or go to the clubs they go to or belong to the associations they belong to. But also, if you can't do that, you can call up people and invite them for lunch. You can invite them to just let you interview them for 10 minutes. You have some questions because you'd like to grow up and be like them kind of thing. Uh, you can watch their TED Talks, their TEDx Talks. You can watch their YouTube videos. You know, you could sit while you're sequestered at home right now, watch YouTube videos for eight hours a day, and you would never run out of all, everything at Tony Robbins, myself, uh, you know, Deepak Chopra, Jack Cornfield. All these people have recorded. There's so much information, so much education available to us, uh, and we can hang out in the sphere of their thinking. Uh, one Harvard researcher whose name is escaping me again, uh, said that we are the result of the conversations we have, the conversations in our own head and the conversations we have with other people. And when you read a book or watch a TED Talk or watch a YouTube video or attend a master class or any of these things that are out there, you're having a conversation with some of the brightest, most conscious, most aware, most successful, accomplished people on the planet. And it's free for the most part. For master classes, you pay a little money every month but you're, you're, you're working with masters. You want to make a movie? Spike Lee showing you how to do that, for God's sake. So it's worth the investment. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is worth the investment. Jack, I always ask a question about bullying because I've worked in the field of bullying prevention for over 10 years. And I'm just curious if you have a story, a personal story. I know that you had a tough time growing up in some ways because you've said that your mom was an alcoholic and your dad was a workaholic. Maybe you have a story about bullying from your childhood or from your adult life that you would share with us right now where mindfulness would have maybe made a difference. Well, my dad was also an alcoholic and he got violent when he got drunk. And I I don't know if you can remember when radios used to be, they were like four feet high and the radio was up in the top and there was little dials. And then the bottom there would be speakers, but underneath it was mostly just cabinetry because the radio was something to be a piece of furniture, not just something that sat on the table like they do now. Uh, And so what happens is when my dad was drunk, he would rage. And if I wasn't careful, I would get beaten. So I would literally hide inside the radio. I'd pull the radio out, get inside it, pull it back over me and wait till he went to bed. And um, so he couldn't find me because he was violent. So I got bullied by him. He was a, he was a, a verbal bully as well as he was a, a, a physical bully. Uh, and I got bullied as a kid too. I moved from one neighborhood to another when my mom and dad got divorced. We moved in with my grandmother. And so the new kids just, they always tease the new kids that come in. So I was the new kid. And one day they, they, I was riding up this alley between the houses and they came out of nowhere and, and, and then took, I ended up in this garage with a dirt floor. And thank God I had a good, bright, humorous mind. I talked my way out of it, but they were starting to hit me and throw stuff at me and, and they would like take pea shooters and cover my whole porch with peas. And it took me months before I could become one of them, if it were, as it were. So that was a situation. And then in high, in high school, there was a guy, we both had the same girlfriend and he was a, he was a bully. He was constantly picking fights with me. And um, so, so, so that was an issue for me, but I actually started to write a book on anti-bullying and never finished it. It was called 10 minutes in the morning and it was for teachers to do the kinds of activities in the classroom 
that would get kids to develop compassion, develop empathy, get to know each other as people. So we wouldn't separate people into geeks and to the goths and to the hippies and to the, the, the poor kids and the gangbangers and all that kind of stuff. Get them to interact with each other, talk about real feelings and what their goals were and so forth. Um, and we find that, you know, most of the people that are the bullies were bullied at home by their parents. And so, you know, they don't know what to do with all that anger they have. So they turn around, they do it to the person weaker than them. You know, it's the old thing where the boss yells at the employee, the employee comes home and yells at the mother, the mother beats the kid, the kid kicks the dog. And so it's important that we teach kids. Mindfulness is real important. Also teach them how to manage their emotional states. You know, what do you do with your anger? If you have anger, how do you dissipate that in a safe, nonviolent way rather than beating someone else up? Because you do need to get rid of that emotional charge. And so in our schools, most teachers are what I call psychologically ignorant. They don't know how to help the kids do that. They just say, sit down or go to the principal's office. And so we need an education for the, the, the teachers and the administrators as well as we need education for the kids. But I would love to see in every school uh, a, a class, whether it's called mindfulness or self-education or, you know, success principles or whatever. I was at a uh, just to give you an example of how amazing it is when that happens, there's a school in Iowa, as you probably know, there's this thing called the Transcendental Meditation Movement, and the Fairfield, Iowa is their headquarters, and I received a, an award from the Maharishi there one year for the work I was doing with Chicken Soup for the Soul, so I went there. They have a school, so I got to go visit the school, because I used to be a high school teacher, I'm an educator, I'm very much interested in all that. And I saw something that just blew me away. It was, it was between classes, the kids were passing from classroom to classroom. And this one boy came up and started teasing this girl. And this girl turned to him and said, Bobby, I know you're just trying to tease me today, but I'm having a really difficult day. So I would appreciate it if you wouldn't do that today. And he went, okay. And I thought, wow, to have the self-awareness to be able to defend yourself without making him wrong, not coming back, not crying, not getting angry, and just and then his awareness that was so uh, clear because they meditate every morning for 20 minutes. I've watched the kindergartners all the way up to the high school seniors just sitting there, you know, meditating like this for 20 minutes. It's so cute, especially the younger kids sitting on their little pillows or sitting at their desks. And if you do that every day as they do from kindergarten to high school, plus they have self-awareness classes, uh, you get a totally different adult than you would get if you didn't do that. Yeah, wow, that's quite a story, it really is. Um, and do you think you ever might finish that book that you started? I might, I'm, I'm, I'm right now have four books in process and um, I was co-authoring that with another woman who was a bullying expert. Uh -huh. And um, she's done a lot of workshops, written a lot of books and curriculums on self-esteem building. Because when bullies have high self-esteem, they don't need to beat up other people to have high self-esteem. That's true. Uh, and so there are curriculum out there. There are books on this. So I, that's kind of taken care of a little bit. Uh, I was writing another book called No More Put-Downs. And it was a, a collection of stories, kind of like chicken soup stories, of people's experiences of being put down and how that had affected them in their life. Uh, I may still revive that one because I, I think that would be valuable. So if people see the impact of what they think is an offhanded remark, or the you know the what they don't see as bullying, uh, it happens all the way from you know kindergarten up into the offices where people work. Uh, but I'm I'm working on a book called Choose Love Not Fear, which I think is my most important book. I re I really wish I'd finished that before the coronavirus pandemic, because that's really what we all need to do right now is choose love, love for ourselves in terms of good self care, 
and love for our fellow human beings so that we can be as philanthropic without being self-destructive at this point in time and also uh, compassionate. You know, we see people beating Chinese people up because they think the Chinese are the cause of this. I mean, it's just insane when you think about it. Yeah, that is insane. Yeah, it's very sad. Jack, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions, if it's okay. And just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? I have a friend who's a teacher. He's a mindfulness teacher. His name is Dawa Tarchin Phillips. He's actually a uh, certified uh, Tibetan Lama. He's uh, actually German and and, uh, Trinidadian, half black, half white who spent 14 years in a monastery in uh, France. And I asked him one day, I said, how many hours a day do you meditate? He says, I'm never not meditating. And I thought, oh, wow, I need to learn from you. (laughs) He's become my best friend since then. My wife's now on the board of directors of his meditation center here in town. Um, So he's a Tibetan Buddhist Lama who teaches mindfulness. And it's also, I think he's one of the leaders of the mindfulness educators movement. He's been one of the main people. Fascinating. And uh, how has mindfulness affected your emotions? Uh, It's kept me much more calm and much more neutral. Uh, Sometimes people think I don't have any feelings. Um, But the truth is I've learned that most of my feelings come from thoughts. And if I'm aware of the thoughts and can deal with them at that level, then I don't have to have the emotional outburst. I still cry when something, you know, like cats and, and, and skunks play together. And I see those on YouTube, you know, I love interspecies things and I cry at movies, but uh, I don't cry so much about loss. I'd cry more at the joy of, of beauty and love. Mm, that's interesting. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. And you already alluded to it with your little mention of breathing, but maybe you can expand on that a bit. Uh, well, I do breathing exercises as part of my yoga and my, my meditation practice. In the morning, I start with some pranayama exercises. My wife and I just spent a month in India, the whole month of February, and we had a private yoga instructor who started with 30 minutes of breathing exercises and then 30 minutes of yoga. So I've continued that since I got home. And um, I've always been, I, I studied Kundalini yoga with a yoga teacher back in my 30s. So doing that breath of fire, you know, mm-hmm. real, real fast. By the way, if, if any of you do get coronavirus or you do get a fever, if you get into a hot bathtub or if you get, if you got a sauna or a steam bath, get as hot as you can and then just do breath of fire for about this, as long as you can sustain it. I mean, we're talking like five, six minutes, whatever. You will raise your body temperature so high you'll start to fight off the virus. That's what a fever is. It's your body's attempt to burn off the virus, the heat. The virus can't live in the heat. So that was one of the things I took away from that breathing exercise. I know that was more than 30 seconds, but. uh, No, but that's awesome. That's a great, great piece of advice for us. Thank you for that, Jack. Well, your your book, Success Principles Workbook, is phenomenal. And uh, I'm really excited for Mindful Tribe. I'm excited for you to get a, a hold of this book. And I know you can go to jackcanfield.com. I know that's one place we can go. And we'll talk more about, about how we can connect. But um, are there any other books that you would recommend that are related to mindfulness that can really help us? Well, I think Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now, was really, really powerful for me. For me. It just really, he, he, there's one story. Can I tell a quick story? Yes, of course. Anyway, the, out of all the things in that book, of which there's an amazing amount of, of great things, one story stuck with me. He said he was in line in a store in Beverly Hills waiting to pay for something he bought. It was a day or two before Christmas, long line. Everyone's impatiently wanting to get to the front. 
as Beverly Hills people tend to be. And the, he gets finally, he's like number 20 in line. He finally gets to the front. The woman says, thank you for waiting. He said, I wasn't waiting. She said, no, I saw you back there. You've been in line for 20 minutes. He said, well, I wasn't waiting. She said, what do you mean? He said, well, waiting would imply that I was wanting to be up here, that being up here with you was better than being back there where I was. So I wasn't waiting. I wasn't impatient. I was just being where I was in the moment. And I thought, oh, my God, because I, I was so impatient. That was one of the things, like things that aren't efficient used to drive me crazy. Now they're just what they are. But that that changed my life. So I think that book was one that uh, I recommend everybody read. Anything by Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, I think, is also uh, uh, very important. So are there any apps at all that you would recommend that people can use to help with their mindfulness? I don't, I don't use a lot of apps in that area of my life because I just set my alarm to go off, as I mentioned, about every hour and remind me that, you know, pay attention. Do I need to drink water? Do, do some breathing, get up and walk around. Uh, I know there are a bunch of apps. My wife has some meditation apps. You probably know some that you use that you've recommended to people, but I'm not a huge app guy other right. than, you know, Facebook, the CNN newsfeed, things like that. Right. Well, you know, having said what you said, you know, I know there's the Pomodoro apps that do much like what you're mentioning. You know, they remind you to take a little break or to have a drink of water or whatever. And and I think sometimes we need that reminder because we get so, so tied up in our work, don't we? We get distracted. You know, uh, Marshall McLuhan back in the 1970s talked about something called hot media versus cold media. Most people, young people today, get all their news from their phone or their iPad or their computer. It's much easier to be distracted. Very hard to walk by a television. Have you ever been like in a big box store and the TVs are all there and you're walking by? You stop and you yeah. watch. All the, all the screens are turned to the same thing. It could be a sporting event or skiing or whatever the heck it is. But it's very hard to ignore. And so our 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 all these smartphones and things we have are very distracting. And so if you're working on your computer, it's easy to go two, three, four hours without paying attention to your body, without paying attention to anything really other than what you're doing. So I think it's good to have reminders. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Well, you know, this, this book is really phenomenal. And, and uh, so Mindful Tribe, I really suggest you check it out. The Success Principles Workbook yeah, that's fantastic. And is that the best place we can go to to jackcanfield.com? The best place to go right now is the successprinciplesworkbook.com forward slash order. And the reason for that is, uh, as we were recording this, Amazon is out. In the first two days of its release, which was just a few days ago, uh, they sold out uh, thousands and thousands of copies. And because of the coronavirus and the reality that people are ordering things they really need, more so than maybe another book, uh, it's taking a little longer to restock the shelves. However, as we record this, Barnes and Noble has copies and so does Books A Million. So if you go to the successprinciplesworkbook.com forward slash order, what'll happen, it'll tell you which bookstores have the uh, ability to order it from, and then you can go right ahead and order, and then you'll get a, a bonus, which is I did a one and a half hour masterclass on applying the success principles to your life right now, and that you'll be able to watch the replay of that, plus you'll be able to download the first chapter of the book digitally and get started right now before you actually get the book in the mail or you get the digital book, you can buy a Kindle version, of course. Um, and then also there's some other bonuses as well. Not a whole big plethora like a lot of people do. We don't want to overwhelm you with stuff, but uh, 
we want you to get started now and we want you to make sure you can get a copy of the book and also watch the masterclass an hour and a half everyone that's watched it has said it's amazing so now the replay is available and I do have a question. Um, with so many of our borders closed, is there, a, is there a problem getting the book if we're in a country other than U.S.? I'm in Canada, and I know a lot of our listeners are in other countries. Will that be an issue, do you think? I think not. I think Amazon CA has it, .ca has it. Also, uh, if they don't, they will very shortly. Uh, HarperCollins, who's our publisher, is really working very hard at getting distribution. I know there are about... 8,000 copies in the system out there right now in one bookstore or another. You could check chapters, uh, you know, all the Canadian bookstores. Okay. Yeah, well, we'll definitely do that. And and Jack, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on Mindfulness Mode. It's been really fantastic to talk to you. Well, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Bye now. Okay, take care, my friend. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.